Welcome to Help from Future Self. Howdy, Archons. Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self, the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. This week, it is me and one of my very best Keyforge friends, Sydney Steele. Hello, hello. And because it's just the two of us, we thought that we would take on something that we had discussed a little while ago as a potential topic, but that uh, sort of was just uh, one that we had in the back pocket for just such a week when it would just be one or two of us uh, on the cast. We're going to be talking about upgrades. They've been a part of Keyforge since the very beginning, and yet some might say that they have been a very minor part of Keyforge for the entirety of that time. Sydney, are Absolutely. you ready for this convo? You bet. All right. So I have sort of an initial thought here on what the role of an upgrade should be in a perfect world. I think that in a perfect world, what an upgrade offers you is either added value to a creature or it adds a uh, 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 basically a uh, value to a creature that may not have much of its own once it's already been played. So the idea is that you're either taking something that a creature has and you're giving it like an ability to do what it does better, either by powering it up or armoring it or allowing it to act more than once in a single turn, or you're giving a creature that maybe it's like a vanilla small creature that you play out on the table and you're giving it the ability to reap and do something or otherwise. That's kind of the feeling that I have. There's also a host of other upgrades that do other different things sometimes when you put them on your opponent's creatures, but that's kind of what I see the overall role of an upgrade as. Would you sort of agree with that that outlook, Sydney? I absolutely agree. Usually the only time it doesn't fulfill one of those two categories is when you're pulling off a random trick of some kind or you're benefiting in some like really niche way, like getting that sixth amber, even if you're, you're playing it on an opponent's creature, you know, like you're just trying to, to skirt the rules. So I think those two are pretty great. Yeah. So here's my perhaps not controversial at all take. I think that upgrades have kind of not been great for most of Keyforge. Um, obviously, there are upgrades that are really excellent and some that when combined with certain creatures are absolutely game-breaking. But on the whole, I think that the best thing that you can say about upgrades is that more often than not, they give you a pip of amber <laughs> with uh, them. So they're never a dead card to play unless you don't have a creature to put them on. But by and large, I find that most upgrades don't have a huge impact on my decks or on the games that I play my decks in, unless it's a very specific combination of upgrade and creature. Uh, yeah, I think like the bell curve of how great an upgrade can be versus how bad an upgrade can be is, is a lot smaller than any of the other like artifact or creature or action. Because if a really, really, really great upgrade comes out, it's still not going to, it's not going to be the the best thing that's happened to that deck unless let's say you have a transporter platform for instance it's still a transporter platform deck like it's not about the upgrade the upgrade just complements the artifact i think that the the artifacts that make upgrades better actually take away some of the prestige from the from the upgrades Mm -hmm, indeed. So why don't we do a little set by set analysis and uh, i'm going to let folks know right up front there are fewer upgrades 
in Keyforge as things go on. Like once we get into the latter sets, you're going to be seeing that they introduce way fewer of them and even reprint fewer of them. But there was actually a healthy number of about 21 in Coda. Why don't you uh, talk a little bit about Coda upgrades? Absolutely. I think there was a good balance too between all of the different houses where in, in later sets, they, they didn't do as much of that. So there were um, a handful for each house. And I think the, the only houses that really suffered from from not the best upgrades were, were Brobnar and Untamed. But um, some of the ones we mentioned, uh, I think I think it was last week we did Dis. Like one of my favorite upgrades ever uh, was Collar of Subordination. You mm-hmm. control this creature. But also that is one of the only ones in Coda that you would intentionally put on the opponent's creature. We don't really see yet the ability or the ability to benefit from putting upgrades on the opponent's creature. So a lot of Coda's upgrades were more basic and they they did give um, Amber. So, so a lot of them were actually beneficial no matter if you put them on your own or your opponent. But um, some, of, some of my other favorites around here were um, Experimental Therapy and Rocket Boots. Logos mm-hmm. really, really benefited from these. I think a lot of Logos creatures had reap effects and um, experimental therapy was a super fun kind of like way that you could manipulate an upgrade depending on the situation. And that's that's definitely something that not all upgrades are are that fun or, or tricky or um, flexible. A lot of them are you usually just put them on whatever creatures out there. I really think that the house that shined the most when it came to upgrades in the Coda era was Mars. They had four upgrades, and they're four very like classic upgrades. Um, I think the best of them was Brainstem Antenna, which, if you're not familiar, was absolutely game-breaking in the right deck. Um, this creature gains, after you play a Mars creature, ready this creature, and for the remainder of the turn, it belongs to House Mars. So if you put this on a non-Mars creature... Um, like, say, one that had a really cool reap power, you could keep playing Mars creatures and keep readying and using that creature with Bramesten Antenna, and you could absolutely bust the game. Um, there's all kinds of creatures that you could do stuff with like that. Um, I also thought that Red Planet Raygrun and uh, the original uh, card that needed to get a, uh, <laughs> a, a rules clarification, Biomatrix Backup, were good high-value cards. And, uh, you know, a Jammer Pack, an original, one of the original ways that you could manipulate uh, the cost of keys and that you could put on some of the very large Mars creatures that existed that were a little harder to wipe off the board. So definitely some cool stuff there. And, of course, uh, honorable mention to uh, Dusk Runner over in Shadows, which, you know, just another Shadows Steel Power is pretty hefty to be able to throw on any creature in your deck. Um, I also got a lot of value out of Silent Dagger myself, but uh, those would be the ones you mentioned, and the ones that I just mentioned are probably the standouts, although I do have a little Blood of Titans love in my heart, just because <laughs> I like being able to pump up creatures, especially creatures that you wanted to keep on the board. So if you had like a Brobnar Untamed deck, being able to throw uh, Blood of Titans onto a Hunting Witch was actually pretty useful. Oh, absolutely. And I think to what you mentioned before, where upgrades, one of their functions is to make whatever the the creature already does better. I think Sanctum really, really did that well because they didn't really leave their theme. All of the cards there add something to the creature that that makes it more more powerful or more useful. And even the one that is a little bit outside of that mantle of the zealot, this creature gains, you may use this creatures if it belonged to the active house, making something a sanctum kind of also feels a little bit sanctum-y. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
let's move on and talk a little bit about AOA. AOA is an interesting case because there was some good reprints. We saw Collar of Subordination and Rocket Boots come back, uh, as well as Brainstem Antenna. But man, let's look at just the original cards that made their way into the set. And there was very few of them. There was only mm-hmm. 10 total for the entire set. And most of them aren't very good. Um, backup copy allowing you to basically, creature gets destroyed, put it on top of your deck. That could be useful. Um, but most of the rest of them are kind of just non-game affecting in any way. Um, Soul Keeper's okay, but things like Cyber Giant Rig, uh, Seraphic Armor, uh, despite having an amazing name, the uh, Killzord Mark 9001, <laughs> they're just, they're not game impacting in any way. Um, and it's kind of a drag. I agree completely. I think the the idea of having a an upgrade that absolutely definitively should be put on the opponent's creatures was was a fun addition like Benarat Venom, the the shadows creature that after the creature is used deal two to it, but it it really didn't enhance anything that the the cards already did. As well as Earthbind being one that you could use yeah. to, to mess up your opponent. But yeah, it was just, it was one of those things that you looked at them and you were like, well, I might be able to get some use out of this. But, you know, as much as I want to like Camouflage, because it's got a picture of a, a lovely Gruen on it, it's just, <laughs> it's not, they aren't cards I'm excited to see in my decks. There's always cards I want to see. And I think that's always the mark oftentimes of, look, you know, there are certain cards you're never unhappy to see and certain cards that you're, you know, generally sort of okay with seeing and then certain cards that you definitely don't want to see. And I find more often than not on that spectrum that the upgrades, especially from the AOA era, fall closer to the I don't want to see them range unless there's a very specific combination of things that you want to do with them. And there isn't really a lot of combo enablers amongst the new ones that were introduced. They're mostly amongst existing ones. Although, you know, there was, uh, what's the creature in Dis we were talking about last week from AOA who could um, sort of do a control the week with a reap power or an action? Is it Tesmo? No. Yeah. Because you could do the amazing Rocket Boots Tesmol combo, which is absolutely killer. That was that was a nice, fun lockout. Um, but with that said, moving on to Worlds Collide, where, whoa, a big comeback <laughs> for upgrades. Uh, if we're talking about all of the upgrades in the set, there was a ton of them. There was, I believe, 32 upgrades total. But once we took out the reprints, you're just looking at a grand total of 26. So pretty amazing. Why don't we run through some of those, Sydney? Yeah, I think this is really where uh, the Saurians and Star Alliance shined. Like mm-hmm. I, I know that um, Saurians really only got two of them, but compared to all of the other houses that got very few, like these two really, really hit. They not only fit the theme, but their powers were really great. You always wanted to see them. Sometimes you wanted to see multiples. So I really think that Imperial Scudum, it's it's something that everybody wants to see in their Worlds Collide Saurian decks with this creature gets plus two armor and gains destroyed. Move each amber on this creature to the common supply. That was almost necessary in a lot of Saurian decks. And the, uh, cal- oh, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this. Calypigian ideal, Calypigian ideal. Uh, play exalt this creature. This creature gains, you may spend amber on this creature as if it were in your pool. That with the, the capturing and exalting, they really, really did complement those houses. So I think that um, the ones that we really saw in um, Star Alliance that made a, a really big 
hit were the Light of the Archons because that was a play on more upgrades. And so you usually really did see multiple upgrades per Star Alliance house in any given Star Alliance deck. So having multiples of Light of the Archons or having Light of the Archons and multiple upgrades really did help affect your creature's power and armor. Um, And then the Quadricorder was something that I saw people play a lot on their opponents because that's how that the wording works that that still comes into effect. So your opponent's keys cost plus one for each house represented amongst friendly creatures. Because it doesn't actually give that text to the creature, it's still your opponent even if it's on your opponent's creatures. So that was a huge hitter when that one came out. Um, there's there's all of the blasters, and those were just a really cool, fun theme that really worked well amongst all of the different um, the different people, the different creatures that, that also appeared in the set. I think they did a really good job giving upgrades a really fun feel in Star Alliance, especially with all those pips of amber. One of the things about the blasters is that it enabled a style of deck that was pretty gross, um, which is the transporter platform deck. So the idea being that you put down um, a a Star Alliance creature, you put its blaster on it to get its effect. And those could range from like pretty good to like mm, pretty amazing. Uh, Kirby's blaster specifically being, of course, my personal favorite. After you attach Kirby's blaster to Calm Officer Kirby, draw two cards. Then you would bounce him back up to your hand, play him again, play the blaster on one again, not only get the uh, draw additional cards, but you would additionally get to uh, get the Pip of Amber again. And if you were playing in a deck with multiple transporter platforms, which, you know, there existed, I played uh, for a little while a Quixel deck that had two transporter platforms. Sydney. Oh my God. It was absolutely bananas. Um, the things that it could do once it got rolling. So there was some very out of control stuff. But of course, we're talking about a set where things were just out of control for the new houses, Star Alliance and, and the Saurians both. And one of the things that made them so out of control was the fact that they had quality creatures, but also quality upgrades to go with those creatures. Like you mentioned, Imperial Scutum and the Calypgian Ideal definitely were uh, sort of the highlights for upgrades within this set. I do want to take a moment, though, to give a big shout-out to Discombobulator. Uh, This creature gains your amber cannot be stolen. That's some of the original steel hate, and I think uh, something that was used to really sort of rectify the balance with Shadows, um, even though Shadows had been quite nerfed at that point. And the only appearance to this date of Ghost Form, this creature gains invulnerable. It cannot be destroyed or dealt damage. Um... Ghost form, if you put it on the right creature, could be game breaking. So doesn't it look like the art itself looks like it should be in Unfathomable? So I have my I have my hopes up that we'll actually see it in the near future. I would very much like to see it come back again, especially too where I think we've got this the game to a power level where having a creature that just can't be destroyed wouldn't totally mess up the game. Although there are certain creatures even in the Dark Tidings era that I could definitely think of that are you know, uh, of a, uh, uh, I, I wouldn't want a ghost form on them. Let's just leave it at that. Totally. So moving over into mass mutation, um, a huge downgrade in the number of upgrades that we saw brought into the set. Um, if we're talking about with reprints, there was a grand total, still a reasonable number of about 25 within the whole set, but a lot of stuff that I think is just kind of trash, like Earthbind and Wild Spirit and Seraphic Armor and things like that. Um, 
were not or like shoulder armor weren't great you know sort of game changing or game breaking effects i think the thing that's most notable about uh things from the mass mutation era is that of the uh 11 uh upgrades that are in the set seven of the new ones belong to star alliance really sealing that star alliance identity that star trek you know they use equipment identity and of those three of those are the z uh series that uh, belong with um What's his face? Uh, Z-Force Agent 14. That is the name. Um, But yeah, if you're looking, I I did really like Access Denied and Detention Coil as ways of stymieing your opponent's creatures. Um, And, uh, you know, Blast Shielding had its place. I did like sort of being able to bounce it back and forth across different creatures. But by and large, like, there's not a whole lot here. Mole is kind of interesting. This creature gains your opponent may spend amber on this creature as if it were in their pool. So if you had somebody who was hoarding up a bunch of amber on a creature, like, from a World's Clyde Saurian deck, you could sort of turn the tables on them. But, like, Siren Horn, Pain Mail, Opportunist, none of these things really ever stuck out to me. I will note that 100% of the new ones added have amber pips. So they might have been trying to make up for a little something there, knowing that if you saw a completely new upgrade, you knew you were going to get a piece of amber. Yeah, this is also a point that I that we get into often, which is we used to be able to say a couple of sets ago that there were no really bad cards in Keyforge. <laughs> like, obviously there was, but by the, and large, it was such an exception to see like a Tolis, which I hate with my whole heart, um, <laughs> that... You know, you could reasonably say your deck will not have any bad cards in it. It just may have situational cards. And this is getting to the point where I don't want to call these bad cards, but they're certainly underwhelming cards. For sure. And that's kind of a drag. Um, So with that, we come to the most recent set, Dark Tidings. Sydney, walk us through. Not going to lie, I really like all of these upgrades. So I honestly think that all of the new ones that were added really do add to to each of the houses that that they come with and i oh except for except for untamed i'm gonna gonna keep untamed as the um the underperforming upgrade house but um i'm gonna start off with unfathomable because i really think only getting one upgrade really it didn't put it on the scene but i think it was a a perfect upgrade for the house this creature cannot ready really did go with not only every single other like kind of can't ready mechanic that un, uh, that unfathomable introduced, but also the art is a Star Alliance character stuck in a bubble, and I think that's a play on like Star Alliance has so many upgrades, and this is like an anti Star Alliance upgrade. I just I thought it was funny, um, but yeah. So uh, the the logos ones, both the logos ones really do they they add a little bit of of more. Um, well, reckless experimentation adds some card manipulation, and logos um, is is really all about that. And I think it was it was lacking some of that, and this really did help add to the pile of what logos can do. Um, and then static charge is really really commonly fun to play on your uh, opponent because it um, deals two damage to each of the creature's neighbors that you play it on. So it's super strategic to get behind things like taunt and helps fight against ward. And especially like if you're drawing less cards because you have the t- you lost the tide and you have a lot of chains, it, it's doing damage to your opponent's creatures over the course of time that can't be undone as long as that one creature's in play. Um, and I think that uh, another another one of my favorites, um, Ransom. So very, very similar um, that the, the creature can't be used 
um, unless you give your opponent to Amber. And when that happens, you do destroy Ransom. But until you decide to do that, that creature, that opponent's creature really is handicapped. So there, there are some more things that you play on the opponent's creatures. And so that, that really, I guess, is a, a theme I'm going with, but something that I really liked about upgrades. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like um, they fit really well. Like there's a lot of interesting things about them upgrade-wise that that they work within the context of the set. And that makes them feel less underwhelming than they did in Mass Mutation. Um, so maybe if they're going to continue to print upgrades, and honestly, like the number of them has gone down so severely mm-hmm. that I feel like they're not a big priority for the designers. Um, and of course, you know, the question is how many, how many different, you know, upgrades can you actually come up with right um otherwise you know the 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 sort of classic upgrade thing of just like oh well it gives this power that exists in one house to another house or something to that effect are interesting but there's also just the question of can you continue to make things that are interesting or are you just spinning your wheels and repeating yourself um i think the question that i will have going forward if we see winds of exchange in print is are we going to see interesting upgrades that add a dimension to the game or they continue to be sort of like this second tier okay it's fine but it doesn't really impact the game as a whole type card i think they may always have second tier status simply because they rely on there being a creature in play to attach them to so there there are maybe some um some upgrades that not that they can be played without a creature, but it doesn't really matter what creature you put them on and they're still awesome. But most of them need the creature to not only be out there, but to do something or to exist in a certain way. And for for the upgrades, for any card to be reliant on another card really doesn't give them the ability to be overpowered. Fair enough. Can't end an episode of Help from Future Self without the titular segment. It's called... Help from Future Self. One from a game that I was playing at lunchtime today. Um, We're all familiar with the unfathomable creature Cope. Your opponent cannot play more than one card of each type. Action, artifact, creature, upgrade each turn. Um, Cope is a callback in many ways to, I think, a very classic style of Keyforge card, which is the you cannot suffer it to live. Um, but I kind of made a mistake in my play in that I took a very, very, very undervalued turn to try and take Cope off of the board when I could have gotten a lot more value out of almost, you know, playing for one of each kind. I actually went back and checked and like, yep, I had an action artifact creature and upgrade from one house. I could have cycled my hand, advanced my board state, and then dealt with Cope the following turn. Um, my opponent wasn't playing a house combination that I thought would be conducive to protecting Cope. Um, but it was one of those things where I, I think that the turn, this was just sort of one of those things where I, I lost the game and I don't think it was because I made this mistake, but I didn't even think through my turn. I just saw cope and immediately jumped to must be dealt with. I'm going to call the house that I have creatures on the board with to try and kill it. Um, and then realized after the fact of, oh, I've basically just given up a turn to deal with that threat when I could have potentially gotten more deck cycling done and been still in a position to deal with it on a following turn. So if you're dealing with a sort of a must-kill threat, even though, you know, a hunting witch, a cope, whatever else that it might be, sometimes you really do have to think through the possibility of letting it stick on the board for one more turn. That's so true. 
All right. You can find me on The Crucible as Scuzzy Gruen. Sydney, where can they find you? I am SC Steel on TCO and Discord. Word up. We'll be back at you again next week with more casual Keyforge conversation. Until then, stay forging.